Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hey, everybody, Chad Madden here with the Grow Your Practice podcast, and today we have a a very special guest. Um, Garrett Saltpeter is the founder of NewFit. You've likely heard of it, uh, Newbie, revolutionizing uh, really the way that we deliver rehab in uh, all sorts of settings. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Welcome to the podcast here, Garrett. Thank you, Chad. It's awesome to be here. I'm excited to to have this conversation with you. Yeah, me me too, man. Uh, Really looking forward to this. Read your book. and also went through uh, your, some podcast episodes as well. Just curiosity killed the cat. I'm living in Pennsylvania. How'd you get a uh, Saquon Barkley on on the podcast? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. So so we've had a really really fun and interesting experience working with him. And you know, um, at some point we may talk about that in the context of how this unique approach to neuromuscular education can help with recovery from injury from surgery and. With that, he had actually worked with a physical therapist in Los Angeles, a guy who works with a lot of high-end athletes and entertainers who uses the newbie. And when Saquon was, his rehab had, had it's fair to say, stalled. He, he wasn't where he wanted to be six months out or so. And uh, he reached out to that physical therapist for some advice. And he suggested you know, acquiring a newbie and using it. And we started working with him. And uh, it just changed the trajectory of his rehab. So he very graciously in, invited me out to, you know, so we could film a workout at his house and, and do that. We had that little audio excerpt and then we got to use as a podcast episode. And it's really, really fun to get to know him and, and do some content together and just see how it's been able to help him get healthy. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, and just as a reference for everybody, we can link to it in the show notes here, but it's called the, uh, the Undercurrent Podcast, I believe. Is that right? That's right. A little play on words with the electric current, right? There you go. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about the origin story. I know you've been doing this uh, for a while. You, you founded NewFit. Uh, you have a background in uh, physics and engineering. Can you, um, and I read about the hockey injury that you had in college. Uh, I think it was a ligamentous injury and um, how you discovered, you know, all the realizations that you had, the epiphanies, the aha moments. Can you talk about that story and how you got to where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. It, it is one of those cases of, you know, in retrospect, at least seeing how I was able to turn adversity into opportunity. And, you know, it, of course, it didn't feel like that at the time. I, I was a, a senior in college and I was pissed off and frustrated because I thought I was going to miss the last few months of my senior ice hockey season. And having been through more traditional rehab and sports medicine and, and, look having you know having had those experiences looking at things through the lens of of, of, through a very tissue structure focused lens i just figured that was how it was going to be i was going to have to get that surgery and miss those few months and and there wasn't much i could do about it and through these wonderful circumstances i met a practitioner who was, was using functional neurology and he introduced me to these two concepts that are the underpinnings of our work today one is functional neurology and how in addition to looking at the tissues and structures, we can and should look at the neurological response to injury and trauma and the guarding and the inhibition and, and pain that all those protective reactions and how, how managing those can help restore more optimal function to the muscles so that they can better support the injured area as it heals. 
and how working through that guarding could could open up the floodgates to healing, so to speak. You know, if there's a ex excessive tension, for example, that can reduce some of the blood flow and the ability of, for the body to send nutrients and raw materials to heal. Um, so we worked on that. And then I also experienced firsthand the power of direct current. We used at the time, it was a more primitive device. You know, there's like microcurrents and different things. But I saw that using that direct current really helped to help my ligaments heal on their own. And I avoided surgery altogether. So I had this really amazing experience. And going through that, I, I had this calling emerge within me to share this work with as many people as I could. And you know, I had no idea what it would look like at the time, but that was the first main, you know, really experience that changed the direction of my life and, and really started me on this path. That's awesome. So you, and what was your, uh, your undergrad was in neuroscience? Really? So un undergrad was actually in physics. And then I was set to go to graduate school in engineering and then I did uh, additional graduate work in neuroscience as well. Okay, great. So uh, essentially a dual degree or a dual uh, curriculum there. So I did, I did them sequentially, but I, 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 as the more and more I got into this, so engineering, I was initially looking at it from the technology side, and I got more and more interested in the neuroscience side as I was going. And so I was actually, I was in a, in a PhD neuroscience program, and I took a leave of absence in order to launch this device. And uh, I don't think I'm going to go back because now we have a, you know, a neuroscientist, another a PhD who's you know, far better than I am at running research studies and, and doing all that. So I'm going to let her handle, handle that part of it. That, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was in the same boat. I think I'm nine or 12 credits short of a doctorate. And I, I, um, I probably get some hate mail for this, but uh, just, I, I can't see myself going back. No. Um, yeah, <laughs> for the exact same reason. So um, you, you talked about, oh, um, I wanted to ask you about, so you start researching the device. Um, can you talk about, and I, I mean, this is how lay I am with regards to being out of the clinic now uh, for a few years, but um, you know, if I think back to my education in uh, electrical STEM, it, you know, Easton, it was Russian and a parental, very limited in the, and I think we had three or four different types of uh, uh, modalities or settings, but can you talk about how the newbie and what you're doing, the technology you're using is different than everything else that we learn about in PT school or chiropractic school or whatever it might be? Yes, the, the biggest difference and the headline here is to talk about the distinction between direct current and alternating current. And the reason that those modalities that you learned about in the school and you know, virtually everyone else who's gone through modalities courses, the, the reason that you've learned about TENS, Russian STEM, interferential, those devices, which are alternating current. Uh, the reason you learn about those is because direct current had been really thrown out for 30, 40, 50 years. The Soviets did work with direct current in the 60s and 70s in the heyday of their sports science era when they were trying to use international you know, gold medals and international sports success to prove the superiority of communism. So totally different discussion altogether. But they found benefits of direct current. What's called Russian stim, not sorry if that's confusing, but what's what we call Russian stim is actually an alternating current waveform. So the Russians used many types. And the issue is that although there was benefits, they found that it would literally burn their patients because with direct current, you get this accumulation of ions and charge buildup, dissipating heat, and you literally can burn people. So 
they were able to do that for Mother Russia, but of course we couldn't do that here, right? We're not going to burn patients in the name of helping them get better. And so uh, it literally just got got thrown out direct current through the through the baby out with the bathwater. And all these alternating current modalities came into fashion because the alternating current, as that signal oscillates back and forth, positive, negative, positive, negative, you can, you can get it through the skin without any charge buildup and without any of that discomfort. So it's more comfortable. And you can, of course, as everybody knows, you can get some muscle contractions and you can get some local increases in blood flow and see some benefits. The, the issue is that we're not able to tap into the full power of what we can truly accomplish with neuromuscular re-education. Because if you turn up that AC signal, that alternating current signal, turn it up to a high enough level to really create adaptations in the neuromuscular system, you run into this, this limitation where that signal going back and forth, oscillating back and forth, it creates this, this confusing signal. It's sort of like getting a, you know, uh, sensory and motor, sensory and motor, afferent, efferent, afferent, efferent. And you end up training co-contractions as if the body, the body were moving in the same way as if you were driving a car hitting the throttle and the brake pedal at the same time. So you end up getting these inefficient movement patterns. Instead of becoming more pliable, we train the body to, to stiffen. And instead of reducing spasms, we create more of them, that sort of thing. And so that's part of why, you know, for example, reimbursements with traditional e-stim have gone to, you know, very low, virtually zero, in some cases not being reimbursed, because generally we've seen that with a majority of the electrical stim devices out there, a majority of these these types of stimulation, there's not a not not a ton of benefit. And one of the breakthroughs we've seen is that by using direct current, we are able to harness the true power of neuromuscular re-education because we're able to one bypass a lot more of the those muscle contractions, so we can speak more directly to the afferent nervous system, more of the sensory input side of the nervous system, which allows us to one map the body and identify where there's any neurological dysfunctions or where, where there's deficits, where there's inhibitions, where these neurological responses to trauma are, are happening, being imposed on the body, impairing the healing process. It also allows us to tap into the benefits of direct current on tissue healing. The direct current can help orient and optimize the function of cells that control healing and regeneration of bone and muscle and connective tissue. And the Part of the special sauce there, if, you know, if you're wondering, well, okay, that's great, they're using direct current, but what about the issue with the stinging and burning and the discomfort? So part of the special sauce of the newbie in this technology is that we were able to use direct current, we're actually able to use pulse direct current, so we get this electric field gradient, get the benefits of direct current, and we also have a special, you can call it a carrier waveform, carrier frequency, something to that effect, that, that essentially goes in and, and reduces, clears out the charges. So it reduces any of that charge buildup, reduces any of the discomfort or the risks of burning or skin irritation. And it ends up feeling just as comfortable as an alternating current device, even while delivering the benefits of direct current. So uh, I've had a treatment session. We were talking about this right before uh, I hit record here. So we were in Dallas um, at an event together. I did, I, I believe it's called the Master Reset. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and yeah, very comfortable. I think it was a 15, 20 minute treatment. I basically tried to meditate the entire time <laughs> as much as possible. Um, can you talk about, and I, we're going to get into the different applications. I, we're going to talk about 
you know, who this is for with regards to clinicians um, as well, any contraindications that might be there. But I was wondering if we could start with that master reset selfishly because I have experience there. Um, but can you talk about that and, and what that ultimately um, does for wellness? Because I, it's also in the book. And this is a really interesting topic. I'm glad you mentioned that because there's, there's kind of two categories of work that we can do. One is more local on a particular problem or injury or area that's in need of re rehabilitation. And then the other is more general, more global, helping the body shift into a parasympathetic dominant state, increasing vagus nerve activity and heart rate variability. And you know, as everyone listening will, will appreciate, the more time that, that you or your patients are able to spend in a parasympathetic dominant state, that's where healing happens. So if anyone's trying to recover from an injury, they have to spend more time in that state so that they can literally heal and repair and regenerate and, and rebuild to whatever their body's capacity is. It's also really, really important for chronic pain patients. So there's, there's you know, direct rehabilitation benefits. There's benefits to overall wellness. Chronic pain is a really interesting application because we know now you know, the, the uh, gate theory of pain has been added to or upgraded. And you know, we now think a lot about the biopsychosocial model of pain and how pain is an active output signal from the brain that's created in response to perceived threat. And those threats can be physical or psychological, but the, the part, of, part of how the brain responds to threat is to ramp up sympathetic activity. And there's this beautiful relationship where if we can help someone increase their parasympathetic activation, decrease some of that sympathetic drive, that reduces the overall perception of threat and can have a really profound effect on people who have chronic pain. So for people like you who are healthy and want to optimize, you know, that can help with your HRV numbers. It can help you recover between those jujitsu workouts or, or, you know, recover after, you know, the stresses of travel and running and leaning events and running companies and, and all that. And then there can also be real clinical therapeutic benefits for, for chronic pain patients and patients looking to recover from acute or other injuries. Great. So the, in the treatment, um, and I, I know you covered a lot of ground there. So master reset, um, uh, the application there would be um, healthy. I'm looking to improve my uh, HRV, heart rate variability. Maybe you can touch on that, exactly uh, what that is for the listeners. Uh, you talked about the parasympathetic activity or vagus nerve uh, activation. Can you talk about how the master reset um, gets into that and, and helps there? Heart rate variability is a, is a really great window into how effectively someone is handling stress at that moment in time. And so I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you started there because that, that is a really valuable indicator. So many people at least are familiar with it, I imagine, by now, you know, a little high level overview. It basically is the subtle change in, in heart rate that happens with different phases of the breath. If anyone you know, just wants a quick primer on it. So the, if, if someone has a 60 beat per minute heart rate, one might think, well, that's just one second, one second, one second, one second, it's gonna be a regular beat. Ideally, it'll actually speed up a little bit on inhale. So it might go the, the beats might be 0.8 or 0.9 seconds apart. So they're a little faster. And then on exhale, it might slow down, slow down a little bit. So they're like 1.1 or 1.2 seconds apart. And the average is one second apart or 60 beats per minute. But there's this, this moment to moment beat to beat variability in that. So the reason this is interesting is because 
it basically tells us, okay, this person, how effectively are they dealing with the overall stress load in their life right now? If they're tapped out and they can't deal with that, then they're not going to have any more bandwidth left to monitor and adapt to these subtle changes in the internal environment, changes in, in air pressure when at different phases of the breath, for example. Whereas if someone is coping well with the current overall stress load in their life, then they do have the bandwidth to respond and make those subtle adaptations. So it's a really good indicator. We've, we've seen there's a lot of research validating heart rate variability or HRV as a, as a valuable measurement. It gives us great insight into how effectively someone is handling or not handling the stress in their lives. And it gives us a good sense of their current functional capacity or recovery or adaptive capacity and bandwidth. And um, it's mediated by the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve from the brainstem, there's actually two branches, but so the ventral branch of the vagus nerve controls this, this variability in heart rate. And it, um, it gives us an indicator into overall parasympathetic function. So we wanna increase, wanna improve that, you know, generally speaking, more is better for the most part, with some exceptions, and there's context specific. But one of the things that we've seen that's really cool, really compelling, is there's several clinicians that use the Newbie device, have these diff different types of HRV measuring tools. Sometimes it's this BioStrap, the, the device that I have on my wrist here, or an Aura ring that people wear. Sometimes it's a more sophisticated clinical device where you put leads on the on the chest or wear one electrode on each wrist and actually measure the electrical activity. And so we've seen clinicians look at heart rate variability before and after doing this master reset. And it'll be, it'll be profound. You know, someone will come in with 35 milliseconds of, of uh, variability. So the, the standard deviation of, as a measurement there of heart rate variability, come in with something like 35 and it'll, it'll after 15 to 20 minutes, it'll go up to 135. I mean, we'll see these profound changes and that is, it's like what happens if you just lie down and do a guided meditation or a focused intentional breathing session. It's like that, but times two, times three, times four, times five. It helps further increase that neurological shift. And so in order to do that, we're lying down with the pads on. Typically we're going from the base, the skull, brainstem, trying to stimulate the, you know, that vagus nerve and, and other, other neurologically rich tissues there. Uh, and then also, pairing that with electrodes on the balls of the feet because the feet are so neurologically rich and we've seen that combination. Sometimes you can put the other pads other places, but uh, we've seen that typically leads to these profound shifts in heart rate variability and autonomic function and gets people into that state where they can actually recover as efficiently and effectively as possible. I think I shared with you before we started here um, that evening um, my HRV was 68 or so with a peak around 130-ish, which was, uh, was pretty fair for me. The, relatively speaking, um, I was doing a lot of travel <laughs> at that time, so um, it felt great. I, and probably the most remarkable thing would be Carl, the co-founder here at Breakthrough, went right before me. And when he um, stood up, he said it, it felt like he took a nap. Like, that's how refreshing it was. Um, in, in 15 or 20 minutes. So uh, yeah, I love that application. Um, the, you mentioned clinicians, what it, I, and it looks just from reading through the book, you did a really nice job there of balancing uh, clinician stories and also um, patient stories as well. 
So well done there. But what types of uh, clinicians are you working with right now? There's a, a good mix. There's a good a fair number of physical therapists. So there's a uh, hundred something practices that are using the newbie so far, and then dozens more as of you know as of the date we're speaking here today of chiropractic, other sports medicine facilities, and then there's some that have you know more of these like biohacking type facilities that may use cryotherapy and PEMF and other modalities. They're using this so. Um, we've we've certified about uh, between 14 and 1500 practitioners as of the date of this uh, recording, and it's a mix of physical therapists, chiropractors, athletic trainers, you know, some physicians, and then some strength and conditioning coaches or uh, people who are working more in that sports performance well, realm or other aspects of the continuum of care. And they just because it's you know it's a medical device, it's the highest power allowed by law. And with the regulations, they just have to be working, you know, in, in the office of a medical professional or under the supervision of, of some sort of medically credentialed individual. So pretty much in any setting that deals with rehabilitation or wellness. You know, that would have been a more concise way to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you, you yeah. did. You did great. Um, yeah. It, um, and, and only because I have friends in the space, but regenerative medicine as well was another one that I wrote down that I saw you had mentioned there. And I think you covered that. Um, but the, I, I think there's a, there, there seems to be a very large trend within society right now within our medical system. You know, the, the average family has a 5000 to $7,500 deductible per year. And they're starting to look at alternative methods of healing versus uh, going to surgery right away. So yeah, uh, very promising on the trend there for you. Um, want to shift to the book next. Um, you, so you wrote the book, I'll hold it up. Everybody can see it over your right shoulder if you're watching, but the new fit method, um, this was my, you, you personalized this for me. So appreciate that um, and, and signed that in the cover. The, so went through the book, there you go. Um, the, in, in the early part, in part one, Garrett, you talk a lot about um, the body software and you know, software primarily meaning uh, function, and then also uh, the hardware, which is more of a, the structural component. Wondering if you could um, go through and basically summarize how you view, um, or you, and by the way, the other thing I want to compliment you on is I think there are 177 references in the book. Um, so there's a ton of research as well. So you have patient testimonials and some great ones, including a lot of professional athletes. Uh, a lot of clinical owners sharing their experience implementing the newbie um, and the treatment within their clinic, and then um, also the, a ton of research. Can you comment on or summarize the, the difference between software and, and hardware and how the two are related and what it means for healing? First of all, thank you for the kind words about the book. I'm glad that you know that was my intention was to communicate some of those neurological concepts and then bring them to life so we can see how they can be applied in, in daily practice. And I appreciate that there because I think that at least, you know, helps us see that we're, we're getting better at accomplishing that goal and communicating the message. And uh, these, this conversation about software and hardware, you know, one example of it is like you mentioned, you know, a couple of friends that have regenerative medicine practices. If you talk about giving somebody exosomes or stem cells or PRP or these growth factors that gives somebody the raw material to repair their structure, their hardware, 
which could be the cartilage or tendon or ligament or other connective tissue to repair those physical structures. And that can be great if that's needed. And we also have to, of course, improve, improve function. So, so we need to have both. Uh, we need to have both working optimally where I think one of the biggest shifts is that, that we're, you know, that we're sharing in our work is that we're really prioritizing that functional approach. We're looking first in many cases at the software, of course, screening for any significant hardware. You know, if someone is at, we think there might be a tear or a fracture or something, you know, we're screening for that first. However, generally we're, we're really prioritizing much, much higher the functional approach, looking at, at this neurological response to injury and trauma, these compensatory patterns from guarding and, and bracing and creating tension and inhibiting in other areas and pain is part of that as well. So looking at that, and it's really, it's really interesting some of the outcomes that we see when we look first at the software, when we take that nervous system first or function first approach, really interesting some of the outcomes that we see. And one example, you know, a story that I share in the book is we were here in town at the uh, Division One athletic training room and uh, we're doing demos with their staff and they, they had a guy, a linebacker who happened to have suffered a grade, they said two, two and a half AC separation five days prior. And he came in and he could only raise his arm, you know, about 30 degrees, 30 to 40 degrees of abduction. And he just had that, that sharp searing pain there. And, you know, he thought it was going to be a couple of weeks to heal because that's what it normally is. And he was just trying to manage it and do some exercises and do some manual therapy. And by looking, by really prioritizing and really looking at this software-based approach, we went through our process. We mapped him with the newbie. We identified, we, we scanned around, took my electrodes, scanned around on his body. Did I, did I mute myself there? Oh, sorry. I, You're I, back. I, hit, I hit, the, hit, the, hit the button on my headset. <laughs> you, you were talking about the, the scan. Yeah. yeah. So, so we, we did this mapping process with him. We scanned around on his body and we found these, these areas of hypersensitivity or these hotspots or areas of interest on his supraspinatus and down on border of infraspinatus and teres. And we stimulated those areas, used the signal, used the current on those areas and had him go through just abduction movements. And after a couple minutes, he got his arm up to horizontal. A couple more minutes, his arm is all the way up overhead. And he, he looks up and he says, what the beep did, did you just do to me? And the reason I love this story is that in answering the question, it gets to the heart of this hardware and software conversation because we thought, or he thought, and his staff thought that he primarily had a hardware issue. It was that, that, you know, partial tear of the AC ligament. And we know based on how he responded that, you know, we, well, first of all, we know that in, in an eight minute treatment, we didn't heal his ligaments. He didn't repair all of a sudden repair that tissue in such a short time span. And we also know that a lot of his limitation in range of motion and pain, a lot of it was part of that functional response to injury and trauma, because that's all we were able to reset. All we could do in eight minutes is reset or recalibrate the software of that response. We couldn't possibly change the hardware in any meaningful way in eight minutes. So yes, there was still hardware that had to heal, still tissue, still ligamentous tissue that had to heal. 
However, he was able to express full range of motion, near, com near complete you know, regaining of strength, and very little limitation. He was able to go join his team for most of the gym workout that day. And he was back on the field a day or two later. He didn't end up missing any additional games. And he, you know, he thought he was going to miss the next few weeks, and he didn't. And you know, to me, that really highlights the power of what this software-based approach can do. Of course, there are the, the other extreme end. There's times where we'll work with people who you know, have really debilitating chronic knee pain, and they've been told they need a joint replacement surgery. And we've worked with you know, many people who fit that description. And, and some patients, they, you know, we're able to work with them and taking that functional approach, get, get so much improvement that they wouldn't dream of having the surgery. You know, their pain goes from zero, goes down to zero or very minimal. And so they, they don't, they're able to avoid the surgery. Some cases, however, they may make a little bit of progress, but it doesn't last or it's just not significant enough. And they do need the joint replacement surgery. So this functional work is of course limited by structural constraints. You know, if someone's joint is so badly gone or someone's Achilles tendon is completely torn in half or, or you know, a bone is fractured, you know, then we're going to be limited on what we can do because of the necessity for surgical repair or other intervention or the healing, you know, the, there's, the time course is going to be different because there is a significant healing that has to happen. So the functional approach is constrained by and only can work as, as well as is allowed by the structure. It's just that in many cases, prioritizing this functional approach leads to these these fast breakthrough outcomes or leads to these more significant improvements. And that's where I think a lot of the, the value in this work, you know, where a lot of practitioners are really finding the value in this. Yeah, I um, appreciate you covering the, the main question, which was, does it last? So the, for some odd reason, whenever um, the, you know, there are those nearly miraculous outcomes, the one thing that I hear most often is, but did it last? linebacker got to finish the year uh fantastic there and uh thank you for explaining the that theory that idea that functional idea the the other um thing that you bring up a lot uh, the word that you use a lot in the book is neuroplasticity and uh um blanket on the neuroscientists uh stanford alex huberman i think andrew yeah Thank you, Andrew, Andrew Huberman. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he, he, all of a sudden he's on everything. <laughs> That's right. Uh, within the last month or two. Um, and I, I know he, he talks about that as well um, quite a bit. And so can you talk about neuroplasticity, how it relates to uh, the, the, the newbie and um, in particular within the rehab, um, within rehab, how it applies because I think it's significant for, and, and I'm going to ask you about the four or five categories um, that you have in the book for applications here in a second. But if you can talk about neuroplasticity, Garrett, that would be awesome. Yes, absolutely. So neuroplasticity is something that we've learned a lot about in the last two to three decades. And before that, the conventional wisdom was basically, you know, oh, if someone has a neurological injury or a brain injury that, that it's just, they're not going to be able to repair or recover or restore any meaningful amount of function. It was just going to be, that's how it was. And we've learned a lot in those last few decades about the ability of the brain and nervous system to adapt, to respond, to heal, to either, you know, literally heal damaged tissue or to 
create new pathways to compensate around damaged areas. And there's a, there's a lot of ramifications for this in terms of learning and, uh, you know, there's, there's so many. There's a great book that I'll mention, which is called uh, the, oh, it's a Norman Doidge book. I have it on my bookshelf. It's the, the brain that changes itself. It's something like that. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll find it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it's a fabulous book and it uh, describes many, many instances of, of neuroplasticity of sensory substitution, for example, for how someone who's, who's blind, who can't see how their, the, the part of their brain in the occipital lobe that normally would process visual input starts to pick up hearing input. So there's a story of a, a blind person who's actually able to skateboard and can make these little click sounds. And by hearing how they reflect off of obstacles near them can actually process in the part of their brain that would normally see visually start to process in that same part of the brain where those objects are and, and see them without their eyes to know where they are and be able to avoid them. And so there, there's fascinating, fascinating things like that. I just mentioned that to share some of the potential and the power of neuroplasticity. Where, where it really comes in in the book and in our work is in the context of working with patients who have various neurological injuries or diseases or deficits. So we're thinking about stroke patients, spinal cord injury patients, MS patients. And there's several clinicians who had been just outpatient ortho or sports medicine who now, now have been getting referrals for neurological patients since getting the newbie and have seen you know, that they've been able to help some stroke patients or do things, kind of add new areas of practice. And the, the biggest drivers of neuroplasticity, so, so let's, let's imagine we're working with someone who, someone who had a stroke or some, someone who had MS and is in a, in a wheelchair and you know, has a lot of weakness, has spasms, has lost a lot of autonomy. The, first of all, we want to try to get them to, to quell the autoimmune, the underlying autoimmune condition so that they're going to stop damaging their myelin and, and you know, seal off against further damage. So we work a lot with Dr. Terry Walls and the Walls Protocol and would recommend an approach like that to quell the underlying autoimmune situation. And then from there, the question becomes, how can we help this patient regain the function that has been lost, regain some measure of quality of life and autonomy? And in order to drive neuroplastic changes, the, the question is, okay, what does it take to create neurological adaptations? Either regeneration of tissue that's been damaged, like the remyelination, or compensatory changes, getting other brain areas to take over for some that have been damaged. So in order to drive these neuroplastic changes, there's two main things, two main requirements. One is, and this is our realm, one is adequate stimulation. And then the other is physiological support. So the body has to have enough energy and raw materials to, to fuel these adaptations and to rebuild new structures and pathways and make new synaptic connections. So that's where nutrition and sleep and keeping inflammation down, that's where all that comes in. In terms of stimulation to drive these adaptations, there's, there's a couple of great uh, commentaries that I've read by, by research scientists that talk about how the amount of work required to recover from, from stroke, from spinal cord injury, from MS, is equivalent to the amount of work that it takes to train to become an Olympic gold medalist. It takes hours a day of work, day in and day out, not just for a few weeks, but for months, for years. 
And that, that's the level of input and dedication and commitment that it takes to drive these neurological adaptations. And there's a few, a few questions there. One is, you know, if, if we're talking about this MS patient who's in a wheelchair and can't walk or can't move her legs, you know, how is she going to get hundreds of thousands of repetitions of various leg movements if she can't even get the first repetition, right? It sounds insurmountable. So being able to to use the newbie in that case and scan around on her body and identify the most deficient areas, if you will, and stimulate them and start to create that afferent input, start to get the input as if she's doing reps, even when she can't, that can start to drive the neuroplastic changes and, and help her create progress working towards that critical mass. There's this critical mass, critical threshold of input that she needs to start driving changes. And so that can help, help her get there. And then the, the question is, well, okay, if I don't have three hours a day, every single day in order to do this, because I have to work or have this or that, or, or don't have the stamina to do it, I mean, any of that, then, then you know, that's where some of these benefits of being able to use an outside signal and use technology to drive these changes so that whenever, whenever it's being applied, we're getting the equivalent input with each repetition, the equivalent input of, you know, as if that one repetition is like five or 10. And so we can we can still, we still have to work towards that critical mass of input. We're just able to get there much more efficiently and more effectively because we can be precise and make sure we're stimulating the right areas and getting the most bang for our buck and where it's being applied. Great. Um, quick question for you. And but for some odd reason, uh, Schmertl's nodes came out of the, uh, the cobwebs. I, I just remember learning about that uh, years ago, decades ago in uh, PT school for the uh, related to neuroplasticity. So hopefully that's a real, uh, a, a very real concept. But yes, essentially we learned that any damage to the central nervous system, very limited neuroplasticity, anything to um, the peripheral nervous system, more likely to be able to, uh, to recover. And uh, yeah, great. Um, so I know you have an aura ring on, correct? That's right. Yeah, so, doubles as my wedding ring too. Yeah, that, and that's where I was going. So um, I have one as well, or a ring. Um, it, how did you handle the conversation? You're married um, with children, correct? Family man. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. uh, in, in Austin, Texas, that's right. Yes. Uh, the new technology hub. Uh, <laughs> the that's world. right. Everyone's coming here. Yeah. Um, so how, what did the conversation sound like between you and your wife when you told her that you were going to wear uh, a biometric tracker um, instead of your original wedding ring. How did that go? <laughs> so it wasn't the first in, in the series of conversations about, you know, weird technology biohacking type things. So having gotten already over the hump of her getting used to me doing, you know, more unusual things like that. Like I, I there's times when I have the newbie, and I'd, you know, I'd have it at our bedside and I'd sleep with the electrodes on trying to do different things. So, so the, the, we'd already kind of broken the ice on some of that. So it was really just an eye roll and a, you know. <laughs> Smart. Um, so so you, you, you worked in on a gradient. I, I just bought her one. That was the, it, it, just, it did not go well for me until I, I, I bought her an aura ring as well. We, then, we, we did that too. She, she doesn't like it quite as much as I do, but, uh, you know, we're still working on getting her, getting her to use it more. Right on. Yeah. I, I never miss, uh, we'll, we'll talk <laughs> about biohacking here in a little bit. 
Um, the, the, you mentioned the scan or the body mapping that you can do. Um, can you talk through that process, um, at, at least in, in summary, from a technology standpoint, what exactly you're looking for as you go through the body mapping, Garrett? Yes, yes, definitely. It is a, so literally a scanning with the electrode. If, if you listen to the audio, you can't see this, but on the video, I'm you know, taking an electrode and just scanning around on my arm here. So we're, we're scanning over and what we're doing is sending that afferent signal, that sensory signal, mechanoreceptor activation, as if these tissues are being loaded or challenged. So that could be if it's a muscle spindle mechanoreceptor, it could be the equivalent input as if there's some sort of stretch or velocity of movement occurring. If it's a more of a Golgi tendon uh, input, it could be the, the input that's that's telling the brain that there's load on that tissue. If it's you know, more of a joint receptor, it could be related also to range of motion. Or, um, so there's there's we're, we're stimulating these different mechanoreceptors, and we're basically asking the you know sending that signal to the central nervous system and saying is this threatening? And, and that's a really important question because if loading that, if loading that tissue is not threatening, that's the, that's, we know that if things are working well, the brain is saying, oh yeah, we're gonna let that muscle work and do its thing, go through its full range of motion or, or do you know, whatever its real structural capacity is, the brain is gonna basically allow it to express that. If we scan over any other areas and the brain is, is actively imposing some of these protective patterns in response to injury, for example, right now, or it's limiting or inhibiting that area because there's inflammation and a lot of C-fiber activity or you know, whatever it is, there's some sort of hypersensitivity. If we stimulate, scan over that area, the brain sees that and says, whoa, 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 that's threatening. And it triggers this, this protective response. So it can be you know, contraction, it can be pain, or it can feel alarming, kind of like if you work on a trigger point manually, it'll feel like that. And so that's what we're doing is we're scanning around and looking at that more subjective. We're working on ways in our innovation roadmap, working on ways to more, more objectively quantify what's happening electrically as well. But these are profound and, and typically easy to recognize for both the clinician and the patient reactions where they'll notice, you know, if someone, if we're working with someone who has shoulder issues and we scan over their infraspinatus or their uh, you know, front deltoid or something, they'll, they'll, mm. they'll give you that, mm, ah, that oh, that's a spot, they'll feel it. And so there, you know, sometimes you'll find information that's different from sometimes similar to what you'd find with in an eval using other techniques. Uh, sometimes it'll line up with what you identify with, with a movement analysis or something like that, or with manual palpation. Sometimes it's different. One of the cool things about it is the patient experience where they recognize when they feel that they recognize, ooh, yeah, there's, there's something there. And they, they know that we're not guessing. They know that we're really finding something. And so that, that visceral, that, that sensory experience helps get patient buy-in too. And of course, the results do as well. If we're able to help, help them see tangible results, you know, see something meaningful happen in that first visit, that, that increases buy-in as well. But the main thing is looking for those, those uh, reactions, those areas of hypersensitivity and then we want to try to stimulate them and desensitize or disinhibit that area where the, where the brain is actively limiting output in those areas. We want to then stimulate them so that we recalibrate those protective responses or compensatory patterns and just get back to baseline, get, get everything back to being able to 
to work at the level it's capable of. And then from there, we can work on you know, long-term training and doing things to increase that capacity even further. But first, it's a matter of trying to get rid of those, those various protective and compensatory reactions. Great. Um, in terms of applications uh, for, I, I think in the book, you have three related to rehab and then uh, two large categories for uh, performance. Um, so surgery, chronic pain, neurological uh, deficits, the any any sort of uh, neurological diagnosis. Um, the it, out of curiosity. So if you looked at the fourteen or fifteen hundred um, certified clinicians as of this recording, it, are is there one area that is uh, kind of like a an emerging market. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Um, in, in terms of a, a new application that you're seeing that uh, that wasn't in the book, a new diagnosis that uh, is being explored, anything like that, um, just as a, a uh, yeah, just an opportunity to open up in terms of uh, any research that's being done right now. So that that's a, a great question, and and I think it, it speaks a lot to your experience with Breakthrough and how you're able, you have this wonderful, really robust community and can learn from each other. And we, we do have the same, same experience where we have learned applications from, from clinicians. They've been able to take the work and the concepts and the, the methods that, you know, that we've taught them and apply them in new areas and sometimes even tweak or improve them. And the first one that really stands out is we were working with a practitioner who happened to, because of his own experience with CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, because of his own experience with that, he had kind of established a little bit of a niche in that area and uh, was, you know, was treating people, doing different things. And when he added in the newbie, he was able to create some of these really profound, really transformative experiences for people. I mean, just, you know, people who were bedridden, you know, 20 plus hours a day because of pain and the associated fatigue and, you know, uh, CRPS people who don't know is, you know, it's sort of like a more extreme fibromyalgia. It's like this sort of, you know, catch all. I mean, there, there are diagnostic criteria, but it's like just this extreme pain syndrome that sometimes is unexplainable, but we know it has a lot to do with, with excessive sympathetic drive and spasms of the microvasculature and this hypersensitivity within the autonomic nervous system, because it's usually a response, an overreaction to a, an initial, initial seemingly innocuous injury or insult. And you know, so we've seen really, really cool outcomes there. Another one is neuropathy, which of course we've talked about uh, a bit, and we've seen a couple of practitioners, you know, a couple around the, the country in our network, and then we've seen a couple of cases a couple, I mean, you know, collectively a few, a few dozen or something like that cases where we've been really able to, to help people with neuropathy. So that's another one that's kind of emerged organically where we didn't set out to create a neuropathy protocol. We saw some benefits from people within, within this network of practitioners and really, you know, based on how compelling those benefits were, we set out to explore it further. So we're starting a, a formal study right now measuring the changes on the Toronto neuropathy scale, so more of a functional um, measure, and then also looking very objectively at EMG changes also. And 
you know, I'm optimistic that we'll see some, some really cool, really cool outcomes there. Uh, and then an, another one that stands out too is the couple of our practitioners were really into frequency specific microcurrent. And that's something that, again, because of these wonderful conversations within our community, we've really pushed and, and, and done a lot of work to try to refine the protocols and applications. And one of the things that we've seen that's really cool is that we're seeing similar benefits uh, applying those frequencies, but, but whereas they normally were just in the microcurrent, subsensory, really small current range, we're applying those same frequencies at a macro current or at these higher levels of current that we use in our typical treatments. And we're seeing the additive effect this one plus one equals four, where using those frequencies combined with the traditional methods with, with our typical methods has been really wonderful. So we see yeah, a lot of those examples of where you know, we're able to, to get that feedback and have these wonderful interactions with, with the other clinicians and uh, learn and really just all, all learn and grow together. Cool. Uh, one, one more that I'll throw in there for you, only because I worked on this this morning, but uh, pediatric practices, um, primarily with uh, developmental delay from oh, what are um, anything from stroke, blood clot, hemorrhage, uh, cerebral palsy. Um, oh, there was another uh, was a sensory disorder. I forget what it's called. I'm blanking on the name of it. I could probably look it up really quick, but uh, nonetheless, so any sort of uh, developmental delay where, uh, you know, zero to three-year-old is not hitting the, the milestones, any research there in uh, pediatric applications at all, Garrett? So, so some of the things I mentioned and in other areas, we do have several formal ongoing studies, first couple that are done with data collection are being published, and then several others that are, that are in the data collection or planning phases. In this realm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we have, this is in some of those, you know, anecdotal early stage realm where we've seen some people, you know, at our clinic in Austin and around the country, we've seen some, some people really be able to help, uh, help children who, yeah, like you said, haven't been meeting their developmental milestones, have, have delays in their motor function or other areas. And we have seen some benefits. We've seen a couple of kids who, you know, older, older children who have CP and have our toe walkers. And we've seen that we've been able to help them reduce tone in the gastroc and the calf musculature and have more normal gait. Um, we've seen, I've actually seen a few children between one and three years who are using it, you know, more gently, right? We're treating them with kid gloves, literally and metaphorically. And uh, seeing that it's been able to help you know, one of them that stands out in my mind is, is an, a, a little boy who couldn't sit up, didn't have, was lacking development of the, the core paraspinal musculature and that improved and he was able to, to sit up and regain that and it, you know, it increased and improved the trajectory of his development there. So, so it's just in that very early stage, like there's signs of applications and compelling use cases here nothing yet in the in the more formal realm but that's something I'm, i'd be very interested in exploring in an area where there's there's definitely some opportunity yeah the, and it's uh it's underserved and poorly supported uh a niche across the board it, it, it i mean if i had to look at one area of clinicians that were just kind of left out like it, it seems to be um those working in 
pediatrics. Just, uh, yeah, just a lot of room for uh, support and improvement there. And they do amazing life-changing work in often difficult situations. Um, not that we all don't do that, but uh, yeah. So, and we can talk more about that um, at another time. I wanna get into uh, biohacking and to, I think chapter eight, chapter nine, ish in your book, you, you talk uh, quite a bit about HRV, sleep and poop. And, <laughs> and you have some really good uh, uh, illustrations in your book there. Um, but uh, yeah, so when we get into the fit, so kind of how I lumped it was, or at least how you seem to talk about it in the book is we have rehabilitation, trying to get back to normal, right? That effort that initiative. And we also have applications where, you know, uh, fitness training or athletic performance, elite athletic performance you talked about where you know, you're working with professional bodybuilders and uh, gold medal Olympians and, um, you know, 45 year old dads that are doing BJJ in the morning. <laughs> uh, and you're talking about recovery there. Uh, let's get into that. So we can go wherever you want to, uh, whatever area of interest you have with biohacking, but uh, what, what applications are you seeing there with the newbie relative to recovery and performance? So this, this is a topic that I really like personally. I started out as an athlete, and so I kind of gravitated towards this in the beginning. And it's been cool to see how several clinicians, several practice owners are, are adding in some more fitness or wellness oriented services where normally patients would leave at the end of their plan of care if they if they make it that far you know then they normally would leave and this has allowed clinicians to be able to offer some you know more like fitness oriented or personal training or sports performance type services to retain those patients for longer to deepen the relationship with them and also increase revenue and and do wonderful things for the business you know both both personally because of deepening the relationships and maintaining them for longer and professionally to help help with with service volume and uh, it's been you know it's been really cool to see so one of the things that that really stands out in that realm is this notion of being able to to make exercise safer and we know that we know that you know for example it's really important for longevity to to maintain healthy amounts of muscle mass there's there's several studies that link, off, uh, that link muscle mass with reductions in all-cause mortality. So people you know, live longer because it helps, one, you have more, more strength to withstand you know, a, a fall where someone might break their hip, someone who's stronger you know, might not have as significant of an injury. And then there's also the metabolic and hormonal effects of having better body composition, greater amounts of muscle. It does wonderful things for longevity and not just lifespan, but health span, the quality of those years. And so- being able to maintain muscle mass is really important, but it can be difficult for many people to train consistently because they have aches and pains, they have injuries that pop up. So it's tough to stick with a program for long enough, or they, they just can't, you know, lift weights or they can't do the resistance exercise that they need to build their muscles. So being able to, to use the newbie, for example, to stimulate the muscles, to get as much muscle recruitment as if someone was lifting heavy weights using high resistance, being able to get those, the, that level of muscle recruitment, but just doing, you know, lifting a, a PVC pipe, if it's an arm curl or just doing body weight squats, if we're talking lower body allows us to get that 
strength training benefit, but a lot more safely because we're certain the right muscles are being activated and we're able to get that recruitment, but without the risk of injury associated with, with heavy loading. And that's, you know, that's, that's one part that really, really stands out to me. And then there's also all these wonderful opportunities to, to break down the neurological components, the skills of elite performance. We have, you know, first of all, of course, at the foundation, we have basic movement proficiency as, and joint mobility. We need to have adequate requisite movement at all of the joints involved in particular sporting movements. And then we have to have the strength and coordination and stamina and all of those things. And then we want to build the skills on top of that, but we need to have the base of this, this found, strong foundation built if we want to be able to, to build skill on top of it. And so being able to play around with the you know, different frequencies that and can work more on strength or more for priming the nervous system for fast movement to use in conjunction with plyometric based exercises or to use it at different settings to work more on amplifying the benefits of stretching and trying to increase uh, mobility and, and range of motion in all the joints. There's these different applications where you, know, you can use techniques you can use contract, relax, stretching, or you can use plyometrics. And there's you know, one of these really fun uh, concepts, one of these really fun exercises that we've been able to do is, is find ways to use technology to amplify the benefits of those. You know, those, those interventions, those strategies can be wonderful. And we've been able to find that we can use technology to, to amplify the effects and get even more bang for the buck. That's great. Uh, the, so I'll go to jujitsu, come home, do the sauna for 20 minutes and meditate in the sauna, get my cold shower and then do uh, the master reset. There we go. <laughs> and uh, very jealous again, uh, just for all the listeners, um, you do have an aura ring sleep score, uh, essentially a screenshot or an illustration, uh, a photo capture uh, in the book. I believe your sleep score either was an 85 or 89 and you had three over three hours of deep sleep and two hours of uh, REM, right? And in seven hours, 15 minutes, something like that. So, so of course for the, for the book, I cherry picked, you know, my best night or one of my best nights of sleep ever. Right. So, so, you know, they're not all like that, but I do talk about this guideline of wanting to have, you know, at least half the night we have, we have light sleep, we have deep sleep, REM sleep, the deep and REM sleep are so much more restorative and impactful. You know, one of the things I suggest for many people is having a goal of spending at least half of the night in those most restorative stages of sleep, at least half the night shared between deep and REM sleep. And that's, I mean, that's something that I've gotten to where I can see, see that regularly. They're not all, you know, 70 something percent. They're not all as good as that, but I've seen that, you know, I like to do that master reset before bed and that helps me a lot. And then just training regularly with this and paying attention to all these other neurological inputs over time has really helped all these indicators for me, help them go up. And, you know, a lot of it, just like anything else in life, a lot of it is being consistent, doing the right things over time. And then the results just come. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, lo love the aura ring, HRV, uh, the newbie, Definitely have to talk with you about that. For uh, before we get to the final question here, Garrett. Um, so, first, we mentioned the book, the New Fit Method. What's the best way for people to uh, buy that, get a copy of that? How do they do that? 
So easiest way is on Amazon uh, for, for new fit clinicians. We, we sell, you know, volume discounts if people want to have copies to put out in their practice and everything. But if you just want to get one, uh, go to Amazon, just type in the new fit method and you'll see it. The uh, bright green cover with our, our, uh, you know, our brand colors will be on there and Great. that's the best place. And so I'm a clinician. I'm interested in implementing this into the, uh, into my clinic. How do I do that? So the, the best bet would be to go to our website, new.fit, and click on the four providers link. And there's a link in there to contact our team or to watch a virtual demo. So the best bet would be to book a call with our team. Or you, if you just want to skip the website, you could write, you write to support at new.fit, N-E-U.F-I-T, like new, like neurological. Um, and then, you know, if you, if you do connect with us, we'll tell you about the, the training and onboarding, you know, the, the device is part of a package that includes our certification program where you and your staff can get CEUs and, and, you know, really get onboarded and supported so you can implement this in the right way. You can learn the basic techniques and the nuances and all the ways you can apply it and, and help get your even more junior clinicians up to speed to the point where they're going to be creating some of these really transformative outcomes with patients, you know, in, in first, second, third visit. Um, great. So is, is that also the best way for people to uh, find you? Are you on Twitter, Instagram, anything like that? Uh, or is it, should we just send them to the, the email? So what, uh, that website is good. And then email is good. And then if you're on social media, best place to find us where we're most active is Instagram. And my team and I are in there. We're, you know, answering direct messages and, and interacting in comments and things like that. And we post, uh, you know, regularly several times a week and share really good content we get to see a range of you know people working with professional athletes working with neurological patients everything in between so there's some educational some entertainment you know it's a it's a good mix so instagram can be tricky what's the easiest way to find you on instagram is it instagram new, it's new uh, fit? it's new fit rfp for rehab fitness and performance uh, someone already had the new fit handle so we had to add a yeah. few letters onto it <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. Um, so final question. Um, the, one of the hottest topics right now in all of rehabilitation, conservative care across the board, physical therapy, chiropractic, regenerative medicine um, is cash pay services. We're, we're literally on the eve of finding out here, probably by the time this um, is published and released, uh, th this recording that, you, you know, the, the, physician fee schedule here for 2022. We're all going to take a hit uh, to some degree, and people are looking at adding cash pay services. Um, so can you talk about that? Um, it, you know, is there, is it reimbursed in any setting at all by insurance? Is it a cash pay? What are best practices? The floor is yours. Yes, great topic. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, we hear that a lot too, in talking to clinicians that people are, are eager for at least some cash or hybrid offerings, uh, you know, depends on the context for how much of that they wish to do. But uh, the clinicians can get reimbursed, you know, services with the device can be billed as neuromuscular re-education or therapeutic exercise, therapeutic activities, sometimes gait training. So working it into existing treatments that would have, you use these established codes is totally appropriate. And, you know, many clinics have done that. So, so it's possible to get reimbursed. It also is possible and and you know at least 
well, sometimes recommended to have this either as an up as a cash upcharge or as a cash service altogether. And the things that we see, if someone wants to charge cash serve cash for a service, there just has to be a value proposition, right? There has to be a reason for that person to say, you know what, I'm willing to take money out of my pocket and and invest that in getting these services with you. So being able to show people that differentiating factor, being able to help them see tangible progress as early as that first visit, being able to, to help them recover faster, and then being able to offer them a bridge where they might be able to stay with you and, and, and work with you as they build that bridge back into a longer term fitness or performance regimen. Uh, that has, has shown really, really good results in in a cash-based setting. It's shown, you know, we've seen a lot of people, our practice at Austin, in, our practice here in Austin is all cash. We don't do a single dollar of insurance collections or billing. And we, you know, before, before we moved into our current showroom, we were in 1,200 square feet and we were doing over seven, over seven figures and over a million dollars a year, all cash. And, uh, you know, we've seen that it's possible and it really, it's not, you know, I wish I could say it's because we had these amazing sales strategies or, some brilliant business thing, but really it's just let people experience the machine and see the results for themselves. And it, it has sold itself. And with the majority of people, they see the benefit and they want to do more. And they are in, you know, in many circumstances, most of the time willing to pay for it. Great. So that was the pretend final question. This is the real one. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, the founder by uh, oh, one of the Quaid brothers, played uh oh the ray croc that one yes ray croc yeah. uh in the very beginning of that movie thank thank you for the save there uh so ray croc is a milkshake salesman calls on the mcdonald or gets a call from the mcdonald's brothers and they order six milkshake machines and then literally as he's on the phone with them they order two more for a total of eight i might not be exactly right but the the essence of the story is there he it, it then you know he has the little medical for uh, metaphorical light bulb where it's like, wow, they're doing something here. There's something different. Do you have that with new fit with a clinician who has just adopted and really run with it? Um, a simple yes or no. And I'll talk with you uh, once the recording stops here, but do you have somebody, have you seen that phenomenon where somebody has just implemented it and really taken off in uh, the application of the, the new fit and the new yeah. Definitely. Yes. It's a great question. And we have, you know, several practices that have gotten four five and six devices in, in a single location because their patients and their clinicians were fighting over them. Great. I want to talk with you about that. <laughs> um, Garrett Saul Peter with new fit. Thank you very much for being on here. And uh, yeah, you did awesome, man. I appreciate you being on. Thank you, Chad. A pleasure being with you as always. I appreciate it. Remember to visit getbreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market. Again, thank you for tuning into the Grow Your Practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally.